everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, we have a very special guest, my good friend, Anthony Pompliano, also known as Pomp from Pomp Investments. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It's kind of it's kind of funny how the tables have turned here. I'm interviewing you for once. <laughs> I know. I'm excited about it. <laughs> I just want to first start with, uh, you know, congrats on the baby. And, um, you know, how has that been? And, and what has that kind of done to your perspective on life? I'm sure that's kind of changed some things. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny when uh, when I had a baby, everyone kept saying congrats to me. And I said, you should really be saying congrats to my wife because I don't know how much uh, I really had to do. Uh, but uh, but it's been absolutely amazing um, to, to kind of uh, spend the last couple of weeks with uh, with her and uh, and with the baby. And, uh, you know, obviously, I've known that we were gonna have the baby for a while. And over the last couple of months, it's definitely, you know, just made you think much more about uh, what's important. How do you want to spend your time? And what I find myself now that the baby's actually here is people, you know, Art Basel was just here in Miami and everyone was inviting me to all these events. And it was like, okay, I could either go spend time with these folks who I really enjoy spending time with. And I think, the, you know, very highly of, or I could spend time with the baby. And so that really kind of clarifies, you know, what do you actually want to do? Um, and so uh, if anyone at home was uh, wondering, I went to zero events uh, and I spoke at one kind of morning talk and that was it for the entire Art Basel. And I've just been you know, hanging out with the baby and, uh, and really enjoying it. That's amazing. Can I, I want to just give you the floor to just walk us through, like, what is your day-to-day kind of, aside from, I'm sure it's gotten a little different now with the baby, but, you know, everyone kind of knows you as this big figure on Twitter, um, you know, you're on TV from time to time, but like, what, what is Pomp actually doing from day-to-day? Yeah, I mean, every day is um, a little different, but uh, but it's fairly structured. So uh, I usually wake up, um, I write in the morning uh, the uh, email letter. Uh, when I send that out, that usually takes me anywhere between, you know, maybe 30, 45 minutes. Uh, once I do that, uh, unfortunately, I spend a lot of time on Twitter in the morning, just kind of screwing around. Uh, I probably should be better uh, user, user of my time. Um, and then around 10 o'clock, we have a uh, opening or kind of prep meeting for uh, the live stream show. Uh, that allows us to kind of go through, here's what we're going to talk about today. Here's the topics. We've got a whole sheet that kind of runs through all of the information, the graphics, et cetera. Uh, from 11 to 1, we run the live show. Uh, so it's a, a pretty big uh, investment of time to, to do. Uh, and then after that, usually the afternoon is reserved for uh, meetings. Um, and that could be everything from internal to external. I try to group all of the internal meetings on uh, Mondays and then uh, all of the external stuff uh, Tuesday and Thursday. Wednesday afternoon, I try to keep pretty free. Uh, from meetings and Friday, I take no outside meetings. I don't, I don't even meet with anybody internally. Friday is kind of just a live stream show and that's it. And what I learned over time uh, was that uh, the more structured you make it, the more efficient you become, uh, the more efficient you are, the more effective you are. Uh, and so when you really think about a lot of the content, I mean, on a daily basis, I probably put out you know, anywhere between five to 20 tweets, put out the email newsletter, put out at least one podcast, sometimes two podcast episodes. We do a two hour live stream show. And then we usually post uh, in total six to seven videos on YouTube. And that sounds like, you know, immense content that doesn't include also, you know, Instagram, et cetera. But really what it is, is it's just becoming very effective at, we record the two hour live stream show. And then how do we cut up all that content and put it on different platforms? How do we uh, kind of use it for uh, editing in the future? And what you realize as you kind of go through this process 
is that it's not very different than building a business, right? Just like you would say to yourself, okay, I only have so many hours to work on the business today. How do I do that? Um, then I, I think that uh, content is very, very similar. Uh, and so we're fortunate to kind of figured it out. And now it's just a consistency game. Just do the same thing every single day for years and you pull away from other people. I think that's probably the biggest thing uh, that people don't um, understand is I started on Twitter, uh, really focusing on it in 2017. And today, you know, with over a million followers, but I only had 100,000 followers for the first year. And that's a lot, right? But still, that's a far away from, you know, 1.3, 1.4 million followers. And so it's just a consistency game. And there's plenty of people who were doing it in 2017. They just stopped at some point or they slowed down. Just every single day, just consistently kind of chopping away. And then eventually you turn around, you're like, wow, this is like pretty big. Um, and I think that's a, a pretty good uh, lesson for life in a lot of things. So I want to unpack a couple of things you said, but first of all, I just want to touch on before I forget, how do you deal with stress? You know, like one thing I've learned from you, man, is like, you're like a workaholic, like you're, you know, working all day. I text you at like 12 AM and you're up, you know, ready to answer questions when I, when I have them for you. Um, you know, how do you kind of deal with taking mental breaks and, and giving yourself time to kind of relax or reload or just, just, just pump, just ready to go all day long and never takes any breaks? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. So like one is you got to remember it's all relative, right? I, I was uh, fortunate, uh, which is kind of a weird way to put it, but I was fortunate that when I was uh, 20, uh, 20, 21 years old, um, I'd been in the military for a little bit. Uh, I was deployed overseas uh, and then I came back into a college environment. And so the stress that you get from that uh, really kind of uh, highlights like what is true stress and like what is it. So for example, any decision I make, whether it's investing, content, other businesses that we've built and I run, um, nobody's going to die. So like, okay, starting there, like the the stakes are much lower. And so I think that having that has, has served really well. The second thing is uh, I really enjoy this stuff. So like, I don't think of this stuff as work, right? Whereas a lot of people, I think they would quickly get overwhelmed. Like, oh my God, you know, I don't know, last Thursday, somebody saw my calendar and they literally like, dude, this is insane. It was every 30 minutes the entire day uh, outside of the live stream show from like 9 a.m. to almost nine o'clock at night. And they're like, how do you do that? I'm like, I'm, I generally get out of bed and I'm like, I cannot believe I get to talk to all these people today, right? And so that in like enthusiasm and excitement and, and enjoyment, I think really helps. And then the third thing is uh, every day I try to, uh, even if it's only for 30 minutes, my wife and I go for a walk outside. Um, and now it's easy to do when you live in Miami because it's warmer outside and all this type of stuff. But like the sunshine, the ability to kind of put the phone down, get away from the computer screen, all that I think is really, really valuable. Um, and so when you kind of mix that, you know, a little bit of a, a, a reset on a daily basis, you enjoy it. And then also just like keeping it in, in uh, relative comparison to anything else you know, you just do it. And, you know, there's days where I'm, you know, just like everybody else. I'm like, man, this is a lot, right? But you just kind of go to sleep and, you know, hey, tomorrow will be better. And you just kind of keep going. And if at any point you get stressed out, like just put the, the phone down, put the computer down, walk away for a day. Like no one, you know, unfortunately no one's going to miss you. If you don't tweet today, like, you know, we'll keep spinning and, uh, and then you'll live to fight another day the day after. Absolutely. I just want to take a second and kind of step back and talk about your early career, how you kind of even got into Bitcoin. We can talk about your thesis in a minute. And I also want to get into like social media specific and like, you know, some tips you have for people on that front, but just 
building up your platform and especially in the bear market, I think that's one thing people kind of forget is that you really grinded it out at the bottom of the bear market. You were going on CNBC looking a little nutty. People were like, what's this guy talking about this magical internet money? And then now, you know, it's kind of come full circle now that Bitcoin has been legitimized. And now they know, okay, Pomp is the go-to guy to come on. So kind of talk how, talk through us, um, you know, how you kind of planted those early seeds and made those connections early on to kind of build your, your platform up to where it is today. Yeah, I think that there's um, two things that uh, in hindsight are obvious. One is my entire life, uh, I've been willing to be wrong in public, right? And whether public was uh, asking a stupid question in school, was uh, having a kind of contrarian type uh, viewpoint, uh, or literally uh, being defiant to the uh, kind of consensus view, right? So um, if you think about 2018 uh, in that bear market, when I started paying attention to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, it was at the end of 2016, and I thought I missed the entire thing, right? So like, you know, hey, how stupid was I? The second thing was I started out in mining, which had nothing to do with the financialization or price or like any of that type of stuff. I didn't understand enough of it. Um, and then the third thing was I started out with ETH and, and Ethereum, right? I was literally had GPUs and we were mining Ethereum. Uh, and so when, when you look at the uh, uh, kind of- This was with Jason, correct? Correct, with Jason Williams. Um, and, you know, I, we had set up one facility, then we built the uh, PRTI facility, and then we started doing all kinds of more stuff. And eventually during 2017, during this bull market, we were like, why are we spending all this time investing in legacy technology type companies? They're great. We enjoy it. We had a pretty good track record, uh, especially kind of seed investing in these unicorn companies. But like, this is where the future is going. The talent's going here. The capital's going here. This is where the disruption and innovation is. Like, that's where we want to be. And so ultimately, like we built, I would say, pretty good conviction during 2017, but that conviction got hardened in 2018. And I think the thing for me that really hardened my conviction uh, during the bear market of 2018 was the people that were the critics of the industry, both Bitcoin and other things. They just were super uninformed. And so they would say something crazy. I'd go and I would look at like, well, what, why are they saying that? And you'd go look and be like, well, the data says something completely different. And I think that part of this was uh, I had a understanding that people were wrong, but I also was just mature enough or just uh, uh, well understanding enough to not go on national television and be like, you're wrong. Instead to simply say, I don't need to tell you you're wrong. I can simply say what I believe. And over time, I'll be proven right. And that to me, I think is like one thing that uh, a lot of folks in the industry uh, probably we, we could work on. Right. And there's people who are even better at it than me that, frankly, you know, at times when I kind of step out of bounds and I go after people or something, they're like, hey, look, you know, just just stay focused on this. Um, but but the idea is like you don't need to necessarily prove someone wrong. All you got to do is just end up understanding where the world's moving in real time and, and you'll do OK. And so naturally, like the way the world works is if you're willing to go on you know, CNBC after Bitcoin's dropped, you know, 85 percent and say, like, dude, this is like a no brainer buy. Uh, at one point, we issued a million dollar challenge to anyone on Wall Street. We take Bitcoin. They could take any investment asset in the world, 10 year return, pick what, you know, go ahead and pick whatever you want. Well, Bitcoin was at like $3,500. So like, you know, obviously no one took the bet. So when you're doing stuff like that, 
uh, naturally people like they remember. And if you're wrong, they'll dunk all over you. But if you're right, they're like, okay, like, Hey, you know, you ended up being right on this. And so that doesn't give you the license to think you're right on everything. But on this one thing that we felt like we understood really, really well, we ended up being uh, right on. And obviously, you know, portfolios followed suit from a return perspective. Uh, and I think that people naturally just say, okay, like you, you get a point on that one and let's live to, to kind of continue as financial markets and the complexity of it unfolds, you know, moving forward. Totally. And, and what are some of the pros and cons of having a large platform? I mean, me personally, just, you know, over the last couple months, I've, you know, had my fair share of reply guys or whatever you want to call them. And I know you probably uh, learned to deal with it, at least, uh, you know, a lot better than I have th these last couple months. And um, I just want to kind of get your thoughts on the positives and negatives, negatives of that, as well as just in general, what's the importance of having a personal brand? I think kind of in this day and age, both of us would agree. And this is something that you actually kind of told me. So I know, I know you agree early on is that, you know, in this digital age, having this personal brand is, is almost the biggest asset that you can have because then you can leverage that for many different opportunities. And I know you do this with, with pomp investments. So just talk us through, you know, the positives and negatives of having a large platform. And then as well as just what's the importance of having this personal brand in this new digital age. Yes, yeah, so there's definitely a net positive, right? There, there's plenty of people who I think uh, would say, oh, I don't want that. That's too much pressure or too much, you know, kind of toxicity or, or, or whatever. Um, but I, it's definitely a net positive. I, I frankly, one of the things that's really helped me is I constantly just think of how fortunate I am that uh, I have it. And sure, I did work to in, in order to be able to get it and, and all of that. But ultimately, uh, folks have choice in the free market to pay attention and they're paying right, with their most uh, kind of valuable commodity, their time, whether they're reading a tweet, they're reading an email, whether they're watching something on YouTube, listening to a podcast, whatever, like you are asking them to invest their time. And so if you always come at it from the um, belief that it's a, a fortunate opportunity or a fortunate position to be in, I think you create the content in a very different way because you want to make sure that you're giving them as much value as you can for their investment of their time. Uh, the second thing is, uh, naturally, I'm a fighter. So if you go on the internet and you tell me to, you know, basically go screw myself, like my inclination is to get right back on Twitter and be like, no, you go screw yourself, right? Like, and, and kind of like get into these uh, arguments. Over time, what you learn is like, one, uh, those people, uh, they haven't earned your time, right? And so like, I don't have time to go and, and do that anymore, uh, thankfully. And the second thing also is usually what you find is all of the like haters or, or the uh, kind of toxic type comments and all stuff. It's usually because somebody just, they're unhappy with the situation that they're in. They're either unhappy with something in their own personal life or uh, they're, they're uh, envious or, you know, whatever it is. And, and that's okay. But when you think of it that way and, and you have kind of more empathy towards, I've literally DM people who've like said it's like some pretty nasty stuff and been like, hey man, it's not like you're having a bad day. Like, I hope you're all right. Let me know if I could ever do anything to help. And like, if you want to jump on a call, like I had to jump on a call very quickly, they get kind of de-teethed and they're just like, oh, okay, like, sorry, I apologize, right? Because I think that they're like the keyboard warrior mentality is like, there's nobody on the other side. And when they realize that you're like, hey, man, like, look, dude, you're, you're good, whatever. Uh, everyone's got a bad day, right? And, and you never know what someone's going through, I think is important. And then the last thing is, uh, I have this saying that like haters are future fans that haven't realized it yet. And what you find is that like, if you are persistent, you'll outlast the haters. Like literally there are people who in 2017 were like, this guy's a moron. And I just kept doing the same thing year after year after year after year. And now they still may disagree with my ideas, but like, you know what, man, you know, 
I got to respect the fact that like, he's still at it and you can literally just outlast uh, kind of haters. And so ultimately over time, even me, like there's people who I disagree with, but I'm like, you know what, like that dude works or that woman is consistent. Right. And, and they've been saying the same thing for years and years and years, even if I think they're wrong. I still respect the hell out of the work ethic. I respect that, you know, they're, they're still at it. And so I do think that like, that's a big piece of it. Now, the other thing is like with Twitter specifically, I just block people. I used to not block people because like, oh, I want like to make sure that, you know, I'm not uh, creating an echo chamber. Like, oh, like, dude, I don't have time for this stuff, right? Like I, I, I've uh, gotten myself into a position in life where now what I'm worried about is not uh, anything other than just being happy. And once you get there, you're literally like, I don't care what you have to say. If you're going to be, you know, super disrespectful or you're going to attack me or like, I just don't have time for it. Right. And if you use the block and the mute button, uh, all of a sudden Twitter becomes a pretty nice place. Right. And so yeah, if, I could, if I could just chime in, I would just say like, you know, it's, it's a difference between disagreeing and disrespect. You know, like there's a, there's a lot of times where you have people that'll make a comment and it's respectful and they're, you know, maybe completely bashing your idea, but you'll say, okay, you know, this, this guy's giving me this respectful thought out response. And he's at least, you know, giving credibility enough to my idea to take his time out to give me a response. But, you know, you just have some guy in the comments just saying, you know, cursing out saying, Hey, moron, dumb idea, like no substance whatsoever. And then oftentimes you like, you know, sometimes I like get in the habit, I'll like check their tweets and replies, which is a waste of time anyway. And you'll see, you know, it's just, they're replying that to everybody. And so like, like you said, you know, a lot of times I feel like they're, um, you know, they're just negative people out there and, and they almost want to drag you down into this state of negativity for them. And so they want you to come back with the response. They want you to come back and be rude to them. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I've learned this from you and others as well as just to, you know, try to stay above it and not be condescending, but just be like genuinely like, Hey man, look, you know, I hope you're like, I hope you're I, I've taking that from you actually just saying, Hey, you know, I, I hope you have a better day. You know, I know some, some must be going on that, you know, you're, you're acting this way or, and, and, you know, maybe you have, you're in some negative place in life. And I, you know, I, I hope you, you know, figure it out. And, you know, I, I'm here if you, if you need, you know, quickly something to talk about, but yeah, I mean, um, I've, I've noticed it's, that that's like the best way to deal with it. You know? So I have this idea in my head and, and this is going to sound somewhat funny because I don't always follow it. Like this is hard to do, right? This is probably one of the hardest things to do. And it's the thing that I probably wish that uh, if I, if I could be better at something on the internet, it would be this. But I have this idea that like, uh, if you think of the um, old school gentleman or the old school like diplomat, you almost think of like a three piece suit with like a, a top hat and like, you know, uh, how do you do, sir? And, you know, and, and like there was like this whole kind of like culture around politeness. And if we think about today, like that would be absurd, right? If somebody acted that way. But like, what is the modern version of something like that? How do you kind of remain diplomatic or, or kind of like gentleman like? And I think that uh, it's easy to do when people are nice to you. It's easy to be nice back to people. But the true test of like who you are is when somebody is a complete asshole, can you still be nice back, right? And like, frankly, somebody who I think does a great job of this is like somebody like Michael Saylor. I've never seen him ever go after anybody. And some of it's a maturity thing, right? He, some of it's an experience thing. Some of it's he's a publicly traded CEO that's kind of seen it all, whatever. But like, can you achieve the ability to withstand somebody yelling and screaming at you and still remain calm? And like, ultimately, like, that's an internal test. That's not an external thing, right? Like, do you have the intestinal fortitude, the mental toughness, et cetera, that doesn't matter what somebody says to you, you can chill. Now, go check my Twitter feed. Like, no, I don't, right? Because like, there's days where like, somebody says something stupid and like, 
look, I'm a young person who's digitally native who enjoys the internet. What the part of the culture of the internet is dunking on each other and like, and the memes and like all this stuff. So like, yes, you can do that stuff. And like, uh, uh, it's not necessarily that like you can't ever participate, but I think it's just like, you know, the difference between when somebody's joking around and somebody's like genuinely like, man, that person probably is having a bad day. And it's just like, uh, another theme that I think a lot about is like, don't punch down. So if somebody that's got, you know, 500 followers says something stupid and here I come, I know if I tweet back and like absolutely dunk all over them, I've got a million people who follow me. Of course, there's going to be people who, you know, double down and triple down and they like go along with it because I've given them the signal that it's okay. And so rather than thinking of this as like, how do I like attack this one person, just constantly thinking about like, don't punch down. And then all of a sudden what you realize is like, look, man, it is super easy to just be a good person. If you're a good person on the internet, you're good to go. And, uh, and life's much easier. You're much happier that way. I got I to ask you this real quick. Did you ever play Call of Duty when you were younger? I don't know if you were at the age where no, I miss Call of Duty. I, I, I've played it before, but not like the way it, it, uh, I'm a little bit older than you. So we still play like Nintendo 64 and, and all of that. That was really when I was like really uh, kind of hitting the, the video game uh, age was uh, was what we were playing. Gotcha. Well, you know, I was just going to say for maybe some of the younger viewers, they'll know this, but the Call of Duty lobbies are known for being pretty brutal. And so I always like to joke around if you could if you made it through that, you could make it through anything. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's also like this element of um, people, again, they're going to say stupid stuff. But like and I don't want to use direct examples, but like I've literally had people who have sent me not quite death threats, but pretty damn close. And then I meet them in person. They tell me their Twitter account. I go and I follow them on Twitter. And then I see that they DM'd me. And I'm like, dude, are you the same person I just met in person that like was the nicest human ever? And it's like, you know, from two years ago. And you're just like, look, man, you know, whatever's going, you know, happening with people is happening. I try not to uh, judge it. And it's just like, focus on your own thing. The more you focus on what I'm doing, what you realize is, uh, you can outlast haters and like, good luck to them. Totally. And, and so I just want to pivot this to also what, what is the importance of having a personal brand in this new digital age to you? And also just what have been the benefits to you and, you know, personally? Yeah. So, uh, I, I think there's two ways to look at this. You can look at it as you're running to something and also running away from something. Let's do running away from something first. I fundamentally believe that the quote unquote mainstream media is one of the biggest problems in society. And I, I have this uh, saying that uh, once you realize that majority, not all, but majority of reporters are simply content creators, you can't unsee it. They're competing with me and you and everybody else on the internet. They have no journalistic ethics. They have no uh, kind of difference. All they have is they have somebody else's name on the door. And especially in the financial media, what you realize is for the most part, these people are employed by fiat billionaires to protect their financial interests. And that's what they do. They literally just parrot the state talking points, the Federal Reserve talking points. They're the people who are telling you inflation didn't need to be worried about last year, then that it was going to be transitory, then that it was good for you, et cetera. And so there's no critical thinking. There's no first principles thinking, et cetera. And on top of that, they're incentivized to be uh, abrasive to innovators uh, and people with audiences, et cetera, because they're competing. Bloomberg, CNBC, a lot of these folks, they are competing. 
Now, some of them do a better job of, again, kind of uh, gentlemanly competition, right? So like I would say CNBC for the most part, I don't see them really going after people in the same way that some of these other uh, platforms would go, right? But there are platforms that literally, I'm like, you guys are bloggers, right? And, I, and I've talked about this ad nauseum. And you literally run a blog, you publish your personal opinion, there is a fiat billionaire's name on the door. And when you do all of that, you then hide behind whenever somebody pushes back, like, oh, I'm a reporter. Like, okay, well, like, guess what? I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to give you any content because you don't have my, uh, not only best interest in mind, but you also don't have fairness in mind. You don't have journalistic ethics in mind. So now I am going to suffocate your ability to do your job by not providing you content. Instead, what I'm going to go do is we're going to go build something better. So you can, again, you can uh, attack them or you can just go build something better. So you're running away from them to something better. Then what are you running to? When I think about running to something, uh, ultimately what you realize is that there is a better way, right? And one of the biggest things uh, that Balaji Srinivasan um, has taught me that I think, uh, he, you know, he said this publicly many times as well, is that there's a left coast and a, a east coast and, a, and a, um, a kind of west coast mindset, right? Or a right coast and a left coast mindset. And what that means is, let's say Bitcoin, for example. I have Bitcoin and I talk about Bitcoin in public. The East Coast would look at that as a conflict of interest. You're quote unquote pumping, you're, you're talking about Bitcoin. The West Coast, you have skin in the game, right? You literally believe what you're saying because you have skin in the game. So when you think of those two worlds, which one's going to end up winning? Well, my, th my thought process is the skin in the game is going to end up winning. Because there's not a person, for the most part, in the financial media that says everything they believe, they actually believe. They don't hold these assets. They don't actually take the actions that they're saying, whatever. And so I do think that skin in the game is an important concept. Now, why is this beneficial? Well, ultimately, what happens is that historically, you had to go through these third parties in order to make yourself known. Now, I can just go direct. And guess what? People can then interact back. So if I had to use to go into the newspaper or on television to get distribution, nobody could interact with me. I now I tweet, people respond, I respond back. And it's just like great experience, right? And so I think that the benefit of this is that the institutions, the trust in institutions is falling. And ultimately people realize that individuals make up those institutions and they wanna know what do you stand for? And so take investing, for example, if you put me up against a lot of venture capital firms, Founders want to take money from me rather than venture capital firms. Some of that's because of the name recognition that comes with putting me in a press release or, or telling other people I'm investing. Some of that's because I can actually do things for them that those venture capital firms can't do. Some of that's just because they want to call me, right? And they literally want to ask me advice or be a sounding board uh, or, or whatever. Ultimately, what ends up occurring is that the best venture capital firms will survive. Sequoia, Benchmark, Andreessen, you know, Paradigm, like all these guys, uh, they're going to end up surviving. They're the best. But the like bottom 80, 90%, they're screwed in this new world, right? So either they got to become the best or they're going to have to compete. So if all of a sudden, let's say that you're a, a Bitcoin or a crypto uh, business or project and you want to raise money. And I tell you the long list of uh, crypto firms that want to invest in cryptocurrency projects and you don't know the principles, but you know the firm name, and they're kind of like tier two and below. Why would you take their money over a bunch of founders in the industry? Of course, you're going to take it from the founders. And so now the capital markets have shifted. So you have the personal brands that have been built, 
and these people have capital. And so they become these like pseudo institutions. They can operate like institutions. And I think you're seeing that in the marketplace. Look at the press releases of these big companies uh, or, or big fundraises. There's the top tier venture firms. And then there are a ton of individuals. And I think that's the future of where a lot of this funding is going. Uh, and I also just want to get a you know a quick little spiel from you about what advice would you give to anyone listening who's trying to build up their own personal brand, um, whether it's you know Twitter specific or just general across you know different social media platforms. Of course, you know you have a big following not only on Twitter but also on YouTube. So, what's kind of some of the secret sauce that you've discovered along the way? My number one piece of advice is don't even start. Like literally, don't even try. 90% of people who are listening to this right now, if you try, you're going to fail. And the reason you're going to fail is because you're going to quit, right? And why are you going to quit? Because it's hard. And for better or worse, we have a society of folks who they like the idea of the finish line or they like the idea of the achievement, but they're not willing to do the work. And so you got to ask yourself, honestly, am I willing to literally put, look at what I've done? Since 2017, every single day I wake up and I create more content than 99% of people on the internet. I do that day in, day out, every single day for hours a day, no matter if Bitcoin's price goes up, down, if a company I invested in succeeds, fails, doesn't matter what somebody says to me on the internet, anything. No matter what happens, I wake up and I create content on the internet for hours a day, every single day for you know going on five years now. And so if you're not willing to do that, you'll never catch me. And you'll also give up and you'll quit at some point. And so the problem is that most people, what they'll do is they'll start and they won't see results in the first day. Like, oh, I don't know. By the end of the first week, they're like, I don't know, I've been trying this. And so my second piece of advice is if you convince yourself that you should start and you sign up for the challenge, then commit to being consistent. And so if you said to me, okay, I'm going to start today from scratch. The first thing I'd say is I'm going to do X, Y, and Z every day for five years. Am I willing to do that work? If I'm willing to do the work, then I got a shot. And then once you decide those two things, that you actually do want to do this, and two, that you're willing to be consistent, you're going to hold yourself accountable to being consistent, then you get into some of the like, how do I optimize? When you get into the optimizations, the first thing is like start on one platform. A lot of people like, you know, if you ever talk to somebody who starts like a local small business, what's the first thing they do? Okay, I set up my Twitter account, my Facebook account, my Instagram account, I got my Google ads, I got my Amazon store, I got, you know, all this stuff. And then they're telling you about their TikTok and their Snapchat. And, then, and you're like, well, well, like you have no followers on any platform, right? Pick one and focus. And so for me, it was Twitter. I did Twitter for 18 months. I went from, you know, again, I don't know, two, 3,000 followers on the account to uh, probably about 140, 150,000 followers before I ever launched the email. And then I did the email for a number of months. And then I did the podcast. And then I basically did Twitter, email, and podcast for another 18 months until in 2020, uh, January 2020, I started to focus on YouTube. And even then, I kind of you know, didn't do a great job of it. I was still trying to figure it out. So it's like you, you got to focus on one platform first. And then the last thing I'll say is it's not just about you creating the content. It's also about participating in the community. And I think a lot of people look at it as like, oh, let me go read a book on my like, content creation. Let me go read a book on social media. But like, you've done a great job, I think, of figuring out, no, I'm here to serve the audience, right? It, it, it very much is, again, they're trusting you with their time. And so you have to provide value. And so for you, it's been, okay, people really want a lot of this uh, uh, analysis around this industry. And so that started out, you know, if you think about it, you start out on Twitter, you start out with specifically on-chain metrics. 
then you start to say, okay, it's not just on-chain metrics. Then there's other things. There's derivatives data. There's all, and you kind of went out from there. And then it went to, okay, it's not just Twitter. It's the newsletter. Right now it's this podcast, whatever. And so I think that like the focus is counterintuitive because you think like, let me get on every platform to serve everybody. But it's actually build one because once you've built one platform, then you can use that to jumpstart the next one. So when I started the email second, well, I had a big Twitter audience that could then say, hey, everyone go sign up for my email. And then you kind of start that snowball platform after platform after platform. And I think that that's really uh, kind of from a high level, like that's what gets you started. So essentially what you're saying is just depth over breadth to start off. For sure. It, it, it's impossible. Like people forget. So you look all that content I talked about, we create on a daily basis. I run my Twitter account. Nobody else is uh, running my Twitter account, doing any of this stuff, right? And so ultimately uh, I can do that because I'm one person, one platform. I could never be able to uh, also do the YouTube channel, do Instagram, all this stuff. So what did I do? I've hired people who have audio and vis uh, video skills, et cetera, editing, all this stuff to help me with YouTube or to help me with content for like something like Instagram, et cetera, because it's, it's a time thing, but it's also an expertise thing. I, I've uh, edited plenty of our podcast episodes. I've personally edited plenty of the videos, but my editing uh, expertise is literally like cut the beginning, cut the end. Maybe there's a piece in the middle to like cut out, right? And like put together in like PowerPoint, like a, a thumbnail. It's not good, right? I can do it, but it's not good. It's like, go find somebody who is good, who enjoys doing it. Um, and so I think that that's the, the key also is like, you know, if you're a business owner uh, or you're just a young kid who's like, hey, I want to get into, you know, creating content on the internet. Who, who said that you're good at creating Instagram content or TikTok content? Maybe you are, but maybe you're better at Twitter. Like find what you're good at, what you enjoy doing, just focus there. And then the combination of being interested, being good, and also the focus, that's really where you got a shot to build an audience. I think that's a great point. And as well, you know, you just have to think of what is the whatever like offering that I have, where's that going to be best geared? So for someone interested in finance or some kind of analytics, because that's just personally where I come from, it's just like, you know, Twitter's probably the best platform for that versus like my buddy, my roommate, he makes beats. All right. So like, you know, whenever, whenever I'm out in the kitchen, I hear him, he's cooking up beats. And he's trying to, you know, he's trying to build up his own following. And, you know, for him, he probably wants to use more of like maybe an Instagram, but probably like TikTok is, is probably his best way to go, you know, do like a little snippet on there or something. So, you know, I think, I think that's another thing is just not only, you know, picking what, what you like the best, but as well as like what, what, what matches the best with your content specifically. Um, I want to pivot to, so aside from just social media, um, what are some of the, just in general throughout your career, biggest mistakes that you've made? or biggest losses that you've taken? And what are the lessons that you've learned from those mistakes? Because I think everyone knows, you know, your success, but what, what, you know, a lot of people don't hear is, you know, some of the like, you know, losses that you've taken inevitably along the way. Yeah, I would say um, there's three, there's three things that come to mind. So one is uh, investment um, decision. Uh, I, in you know, end of 2016 and 2017, began mining uh, ether. It was like 10 bucks when I first started. And I was mining um, not a ton of ether. I don't remember exactly how much at the time, but like, let's call it maybe like five ether a day, right? So it was like enough where it was a nice cash flow, but I made it up for investment, whatever. Today, that would be the equivalent of having mined, you know, $20,000 to $25,000 a day in ether. Like, okay, that'd been pretty nice, right? What 
I did was I watched Ether go from $10 to 30 to 50 to 100 in the span of like maybe January, February, 2017 by May was a hundred plus dollars. And I was like, what is going on? This is ridiculous. I made, you know, multiples on my money that I invested. Like, holy shit, this is awesome. And I sold everything at 150 bucks. And then it kept going up. And I was like, oh my God, I missed it. Like, oh, what did I do? And then I think I bought back at like 250. And then I think I sold it again at like 300. I might even sold that at like a little bit of loss. Can't remember the exact details, right? But like, I remember like fumbling back in and then quickly like getting back up. Like, I don't know what's going on. And so like, I made money. But my mistake was I fundamentally didn't understand exactly what was happening, right? But I was directionally correct on like, hey, this was going to be valuable. And then two was I had no reason to sell. I un, like unprovoked stopped capital from accumulating by simply thinking I was smarter than the market. And so ultimately, like the biggest investment mistakes I've made has been selling, which is like a crazy thing to say. But like now, as I've gotten more experience made, you know, I, I don't know, I'm probably an investor in over 200 companies at this point. I, I just never want to sell. Like you, you literally have to put a gun to my head and be like, you have to sell. Because otherwise, why would I sell, right? It's like over time, most of this stuff continues to accrue value. We underestimate how big it can get, et cetera. So that's investment. Two is uh, I made a career decision at one point. I made a short stop at uh, one of the larger tech companies uh, and it was a short-lived uh, time at the company because I ultimately, I made a decision that was uh, specifically optimizing for money rather than uh, something that I like deep down in my heart really wanted to do, could see myself doing for a long period of time, et cetera. And after that decision, uh, it became very clear to me. I said to myself, I'll never make another decision based on money ever again in my life. And so I'm very thankful for that uh, situation because uh, I learned that lesson really young. Right. That was, a, that was a, a really, really formative thing for me. Uh, and then the third thing I think is the other mistake I've made uh, in my life is there's times where uh, I had an opportunity to go really, really big. And I kind of chickened out. Like I went big, but not as big as I probably could have. And I think over time, what you learn is like, that's where all of the rewards in life are. Right. Is like just no fear, go as big as possible. You're only going to get so many swings at the plate. And so if you, Let's say you get 10 at-bats professionally in your career. Well, if only one of them is a big swing, you only got one opportunity for a big payoff. But like in the digital age, you get so much ability to constantly con you know, take these big swings, take every single swing as a big swing. And the thing that people, especially young people don't realize, nobody ever remembers the losses. Nobody. If I told you right now, Clubhouse, the founder of Clubhouse, if you went and you looked at his background, failed apps, he was a CEO, I think at one point of CoinList, like all this, nobody remembers any of that shit. He walks into a, a meeting, he walks onto a conference stage, whatever they say, this is the founder and CEO of Clubhouse. So like, you only gotta be right once, right? Which is like a crazy thing, because it doesn't mean that you just wanna give up on things right away when it gets difficult. But I do think that that's like a huge learning lesson for people is that you you, uh, you want to go big because when you're right that one time, you want it to pay off. Got it. And so I do want to pivot to Bitcoin. We just have a couple more questions. And we've going on for a minute here. But um, I, I just want to get to briefly, what is your kind of high level Bitcoin thesis? I know you've been on you know, millions of podcasts talking about this, but um, high level what that is. And then I do have a couple kind of follow up questions about Bitcoin. Uh, just as, as we just mentioned, you know, when you when you 
have, you know, high conviction bets to double down. And I know for, for you in your life, one of those big things has been Bitcoin. So, yeah. Um, so my thesis has evolved over time. When I first bought Bitcoin uh, in 2018, um, I think that I understood it well enough, but I didn't have like the craziest conviction. It was more so conviction really around this asset has dropped 85% and it might go down more, but I don't think it's going to zero. And so like, that's probably a pretty good time to buy, right? Um, then, and, and, I, and uh, for those that don't know, I put 50% of my net worth at the time, kind of my liquid net worth into Bitcoin. It was like a very much like a, hey, here we go. Then I would say coming out of 2018 into 2019, uh, I started to really think about like, wow, this is going to be a beneficiary of uh, a lot of undisciplined monetary policy. Um, and really, it's just because central banks, at some point, this epic bull market is going to end. They're going to have to print money and manipulate interest rates. But they'll do it in kind of a, a conservative way. And so Bitcoin likely will, will serve as a great uh, hedge against that. By the time we got to 2020, I had no clue that you know uh, coronavirus is going to happen or any of this stuff. And, and they went ahead and they did it. At that point, uh, I basically went from you know what had been a 50% allocation that had grown uh, to about 95%. I, I basically went all in in March of 2020 uh, and into kind of April. And the idea was just like, they're never going to stop debasing the currency. And so uh, this is a pretty good hedge against you know, inflation and, and, and all of that stuff. And so ultimately, I transitioned uh, in kind of, um, you know, 2018 into 19 and 2020, where I just started to denominate my entire portfolio in Bitcoin, meaning that like I thought about every decision I made in terms of Bitcoin. If I make this purchase, how much Bitcoin am I spending? If I make this investment, how much Bitcoin could I buy instead, right? And the more that I did that, uh, the more conviction that I built to now, you know, people have heard me say, like, I literally buy Bitcoin. And I say to myself, I am going to hand this to my child or I'm going to hand this to my grandchild. And when you have that mentality, like price drops, like, cool, I'm going to buy more. But like, like, literally, this is not mine to sell. And it's very similar to like the Indian culture with gold, which is they just pass it on from generation to generation to generation. Uh, and if you're the, the person in the family that sells the family gold, like you better not come home for the holidays, right? Like you're, 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 you're in trouble. Um, and, and so I think that like that has helped me psychologically not only understand Bitcoin, understand how it relates to the macro market, but also just like there's not a single thing in the world you're going to do to get me to shake out of holding that Bitcoin. Uh, and once you get to that point, like, yeah, you got a, a massive advantage in the world. What's the biggest risk that you see that Bitcoin faces? Um, for me personally, the one I always say is just the cryptography because I'm not a cryptographer. You know, there could be something wrong with the code that I just goes right over my head. So what is that for you? I think there's two risks. One's internal, one's external. And I put these kind of there because I think they're the, uh, the, um, they are the risks that people probably don't think as much about, which means that they probably have a higher probability than you think, but yet still, you know, these are sub 1% possibilities in my opinion. Internal is a code, uh, a bug is introduced into the code. So, you know, we just saw a taproot, for example. Now the Bitcoin development process is incredibly intentional, methodical, uh, and, and uh, some would describe slow because it has to protect a trillion dollars worth of value, right? Like there's no move fast break things here. And so uh, there's a lot of mitigation that goes on, but yet there still could be some sort of bug at some point. So I think that, you know, similar to you, 
I'm not overly technical. And so I have no way to underwrite that. And so that's a blind spot for me. And I rely on other people who are very technical in order to be able to do that. But I think that's one thing. The second thing I would say is um, external is taxation. So most people want to yell and scream about like, oh, the governments are going to ban it. They're not going to ban it. What they're going to do is even if they tried to ban ownership of it, we see that people go buy more of it. We've seen it in Nigeria, Pakistan, et cetera. Taxation is a different story. If they said, hey, we're going to have an 80% wealth tax on your Bitcoin holdings on an annual basis, a lot of people would go sell Bitcoin. They wouldn't buy Bitcoin, right? They'd be like, I'm not playing that game. If they said that, hey, every year, even if it was a 10% wealth tax, if you own Bitcoin every year, we take 10% of it. That would be pretty egregious. And so I think that's the stuff that I worry more about as not that it could stop Bitcoin, that it would shut it down or any of that, but that would be a very, very abrasive thing that could happen externally that would drastically slow down adoption, would drastically kind of uh, put questions in people's heads. And so, you know, both those things, less than 1% probability. But if you ask me, like, what, like, what are the things that are risks? I think those two things specifically, people don't really think about or talk about, but I don't. You know, I don't lose sleep over either one of them. I don't think they're going to happen. Um, it, it's just that those are like the tail risk, in my opinion. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so uh, more of a positive question would just be when we think about like hyper Bitcoinization, right? Everyone likes to talk about this. And I ask I ask everyone who comes on the show this question. We think through this process. What are some of the milestones that you think are most impactful? So like I the way I'm, I the way I kind of visualize what this question is, is kind of asking is, if you ever played a video game and you like go through a tunnel or you go through like one of those rings and you like power up, right. And you like, you know, you get that little turbo boobs, like in Mario Kart or whatever, like what are some of those things that, that, I mean, I, I think El Salvador is probably the, the most recent one that, that people think about in that regard is kind of like initiating this domino effect of like nation state adoption. Like what are, what are some of those, um, you know, certain milestones that you think, that nobody else is thinking about? Because we get different answers from everybody. And I always I always think this is a really interesting question. So I'll, get, I'll answer that question in one second. Uh, I don't think hyper-Bitcoinization is likely in our lifetime. I understand hyper-Bitcoinization, obviously. I, I think it would be amazing. Um, I think that we drastically underestimate how long the US dollar can remain relevant. And I think that we also forget the framework of uh, analog economies are going to use analog kind of central banks, fiat currencies, monetary policies, et cetera. I think a lot about that, right? Um, and yes, you know, 97% or 93, 92%, whatever of uh, dollars are quote unquote digital. They're really electronic QCIPs uh, in these centralized databases. But I think that that system is very applicable uh, uh, to the analog economy. The digital economy is completely different. So like I always tell people, you know, when you leave the US economy, you go to Mexico, uh, Mexico's economy, you literally switch your currency. Well, in the digital world, there is no reserve currency for the digital world. And so like Bitcoin has the opportunity to be like the currency for the internet, right? And I think that, you know, you've heard Jack Dorsey, a bunch of people talk about this. Uh, so I think that's possible. I just think that we drastically underestimate how big the non-digital economy is and how long that will last, right? If you really think about it, you know, People thought that, uh, you know, VR would be here. It's not, right, in any material way. Like all these technologies uh, still doesn't happen. There is still a large portion of the financial system that works on fax machines, right? Like crazy stuff, right? Phone calls, right? I think it's like some, uh, more than 50% of the bond market, the transactions happen over phone calls and chat. Wild, right? Like, like we just forget about that. So I, I do think that uh, we underestimate how long it can last. The second thing is that I think we overestimate how quickly people will adopt this. 
So obviously the digital natives are going to adopt it quickly, but the people over the age of like 45, 50 that have a bulk of like retail wealth, it's going to take them a while. Like we're, we literally, it's been a year, uh, almost a year and a half since MicroStrategy went ahead and bought Bitcoin on its balance sheet. We've had like three non, you know, Bitcoin or crypto companies in the public markets do it. Square and Tesla for the most part. It's not like, oh, well, here's the domino effect. Everybody happened. Now it will happen, right? I think they all will do it. But like, maybe it doesn't happen in a year as, as a lot of people thought. Maybe it actually takes five years or 10 years to happen. So it happens. It just takes longer than we think. Then when you actually look at like, okay, well, hyper Bitcoinization, let's say it does happen at some point, which I do think there, that some form of it will happen uh, over time. I just don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime. If it does happen, I think three milestones that'll be really, really big. When we get uh, a sitting US president who says, I own this, that's a big, big moment. And it's less about like, oh, they put some decree out or there's some democratic process that forces the treasury or the federal reserve or whatever. What it does is it normalizes it. If It's like a, duh, of course I own this. So I always joke that like a Bitcoiner will be president. It's not because somebody from the Bitcoin community is going to run for president. It's just that Bitcoin will become so pervasive that somebody who's holding Bitcoin will eventually become the president. Right, because some young person, even if it's 50 years from now, will eventually become the president of the United States and they'll have own Bitcoin. So I, I think that's a big moment. It's like the first person who says, I own Bitcoin, I'm the president of the United States. The second thing that I think is uh, really interesting is when we get a developed nation that says they've put it into their central bank reserves. So El Salvador doesn't have a central bank reserve like we think about it, but they do have a kind of a sovereign fund, if you will. Um, and so they, they've done it. The United States, Russia, um, you know, China, uh, somewhere in Europe, like a, like a big country, Brazil, right? Whoever, that would be a big moment. And then the third thing, uh, which I think it, it always kind of gets lost in the conversation, is when the default becomes getting paid in Bitcoin rather than get paid in dollars. That I think is a really big moment as well, because now you don't talk about like converting into Bitcoin from whatever asset you hold. It's just like your default currency is Bitcoin because that's what you get paid in. And so I think the work that people are doing in terms of like pay me in Bitcoin, whether it's Strike, uh, somebody like a Bitwage, you know, Square's trying to come up with a product, uh, the company in the UK called Mode, except like there's a bunch of people working on this now. Um, I think that that's like a really, really big milestone. It's already kind of happening, but I think we've just got to accelerate it. And so, you know, at what point does uh, Fortune 500 CEOs get paid in Bitcoin? Okay, like that's a big milestone, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't heard anybody mention that last one before. Uh, I think that's a really good point. Uh, so, Pop, we have a couple minutes left. I uh, have two questions for you. But first, I just want to touch on uh, the best business show and just kind of walk us through what is this for anybody who's not familiar with it. Um, you know, be sure to check out my segment every Friday on there. But, uh, <laughs> but just kind of talk us through this and as well as just like working with your brothers. I'm sure that's really cool. Kind of how did that come together? We're just like, hey, you know, we're doing this. And they're just like, all right, screw it. Or like, how did that kind of process of like, uh, you know, forming the show work? Yeah, it goes back to are you running away from something or are you running to something? Um, and rather than just spend all your time attacking the legacy media, they're competing with you. So go compete, right? Go build something better. Um, and I think that structurally, uh, the legacy media uh, companies uh, have some disadvantages. Uh, they look at Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies as a corner of the traditional financial market. They have to continue to cater. I think the average age of you know, CNBC or Bloomberg is well over 50 years old, probably closer to 60 years old. So they can't talk about it too much because their core audience gets mad. So they still have to talk about you know, gold. They talk about lumber. They talk about interest rate, like all this other stuff. 
Um, whereas we view this as the default is the Bitcoin and crypto markets, and then everything else is kind of the corners of the market, right? So I think that's one structural advantage we have. The second thing is where we place the content. They're all on closed networks. You have to have cable to watch them for the most part or some sort of subscription, right? We go to open networks. We go to YouTube or Twitter or wherever. And so that, that's an advantage. The third thing is that they're closed off from a lot of the international markets. Whereas uh, if you're on YouTube, 55% of our audience is outside the United States with this massive international audience, right? And so that, that's a big advantage. And so I think a lot about uh, just build something better, build something that you know people my age or younger want. And if you do it for a long period of time, then it ends up becoming the default. They when rather than turning on a television network, they turn this on and they watch it. And then in terms of my brothers, uh, you know, frankly, they were here, right? So like uh, they, they were kind of like uh, easy people to uh, to ask. I trust them. Um, which I think is a big thing. Uh, and generally, uh, we see the world in a very similar way, but have enough of a difference in some of the nuance that it provides good conversations, right? And then, you know, ultimately, uh, you can treat your brothers, I think, a little bit differently than like, you know, if I went and I like ran a process, like hire somebody to be like a co-host. You can joke around a little bit here and there and everything, but like, I can literally be like, dude, my brother's got you know no shoes on and he smells today. Right. And like it just provides a whole different yeah, it just provides a whole different level of entertainment. And so I think that's like a, a competitive advantage. And we have fun. I think that's the most important part. It's like we genuinely enjoy doing it. And I think it makes it, you know, for yourself, for other people who come on the show uh on a regular basis, uh, it makes it more fun to do that. Right. If I, if it was like you came on, it was just suits and ties the whole time. Uh, I think you'd just be like, look, you know, I, I like doing it because there's distribution, whatever, but it's kind of stuffy. Instead, you come on and, you know, we ask you, you know, what's going on in college? What are you doing for Halloween? Like, it's just a whole different type of uh, environment, which I think young people enjoy much more than, uh, you know, kind of the, the legacy stuff. Yeah, totally. I, I completely agree. Um, last question I have for you is just what's some life alpha that you can give for the audience? Ooh. Things that come off the top of my head, uh, never stop learning. I think that, uh, you know, even now I'm, I'm constantly telling myself, I don't understand enough. I got to keep learning. I think that's really, really important. The second thing is always bet on yourself, just at, at nonstop bet on yourself over and over and over again. Even when you're wrong, it'll be the right decision. Uh, the third thing is uh, one of the most important life decisions you'll make is who you marry has a lot of implications, uh, most importantly on your happiness, uh, on your finances, on a lot of the decisions you make. And so make sure you marry well. Um, and and uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into that. And then I think the last thing, uh, which shouldn't be controversial, but, but it is at times, is just like, stop worrying about what everybody else thinks. Just literally do what makes you happy. Right. And if you've married well, it'll be things that will make you happy or things that also make your significant other happy um, or other people in your life. So, so it's not like you're doing it against uh, them. But who cares what, you know, how we started the conversation, what the haters on the internet think? Who cares what some random, you know, person on the street thinks? Like the second you stop caring what other people think and you just say, I'm going to optimize for my happiness you'll drastically change the decisions you make and you'll literally become happier. And I think that uh, in the Bitcoin community, we think a lot about self-sovereignty, right? This idea that uh, I need to be sovereign in terms of my financial uh, position. I think a lot about being sovereign in your mental uh, kind of capacity. And the sovereignty that you can get mentally is can you walk into a room, literally stick your middle finger up to the, your biggest hero and walk out and not worry about it? Like, are you in the place where you literally do not care, 
right? And I one time I heard uh, I heard Joe Rogan. I forget who he was talking about. Uh, somebody sent me the clip, and uh, it was somebody that uh, oh, it was the president of the United States, and I think they were talking about both Biden and Trump had tried to do something with him or whatever. And he was like, "Dude, I didn't want to do that at all." And most people would die for an interview with you know somebody that important. They would love to get in a room with them and sit down and, and you know take a picture and put it on the Instagram and like. Dude, he didn't give a shit. And so nobody's perfect. And I think that when you get to this point of like mental sovereignty, where you literally do not care what other people think, then you become dangerous, right? Because now people, there's no mimetic response. They can't do anything to influence you. And that's where I really think is like the holy grail is, can you get to the place where you're mentally sovereign, where you're financially sovereign? And ultimately, I think that's where true happiness lies. And if you get there, you win, right? Game over, you win. The faster you get there earlier in your life, you know, the better off you are. Hey, look, man, the, the, you know, this conversation was amazing. And uh, I just want to give you the platform real quick, just to plug some of your stuff in, uh, in terms of the best business show, as well as you know, your Twitter. I'm sure everyone, you know, listening to this probably already follows you, but <laughs> yeah, just, just uh, if you just go on YouTube, just uh, type in Anthony Pompliano, you'll see it. Just follow the channel. That's pretty much it. Twitter. Uh, you probably can't miss me because I'm saying all kinds of crazy stuff on there. And uh then, you know, go, go follow the Blockware uh, newsletter. You guys do a great job with that. And I read it every week and then we talk about it. So, um, you know, I, uh, I appreciate the time. I love that you guys are doing this and uh, just keep it up. Appreciate it, man. You know, thank you so much for your time. This was uh, one of my favorite conversations that we've had. And, uh, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, you know, I look up to Pomp a lot. Pomp's always been there for me. So, you know, I appreciate you outside of this as well in, in a private sense. So, um, you know, thank you so much again. And, um, you know, I'll see you on Friday, man. All right. Sounds good, buddy. All right. Take it easy.